0: The explicit recognition of the creative input of the craftsperson is key for a new egalitarian
1: partnership between designers and artisans. We cannot conceive of Indian fashion without the several traditions of Indian handmade textiles which exist. But we are also faced with a huge challenge that India does not have a single major private museum dedicated to Indian handmade textiles.
0: Welcome to Fashion as a Great Teacher. This episode brings you Rethinking Made in India. The provocation dialogue by Anjana Das and Mayank Mansingh Kohl at Defashioning Education, a critical thinking and making conference in Berlin, the digital multilogue on fashion education 2023.
1: Mayank Manzing Kohl is a new daily-based independent curator with a focus on post colonial histories of Indian textiles.
0: Anjanadez heads her clothing label White Champa, which is operating from a studio in New Delhi. Her expertise lies in bridge building between India and Europe
1: in the field of textiles and fashion. Join us for a provocation that unravels the complex relationship between design, craft and art in Indian context and aims to dismantle the Western-centric designer ideologies, the advocate for a partnership paradigm between designers and artisans and traverse the intricate terrain of India's rich textile heritage.
0: We titled our contribution today, Rethinking Made in India, I have a clothing label, uh, White Jumper, which I've been running for the last 16 years. We follow a totally made-to-order model. We really work with our clients and cater both to the uh, Indian as well as the international market. I've been part of the project Made In here in Germany, where we looked at the present and the future of textile handcrafts in India and Germany. Um, we were asking ourselves, what is the potential for survival and growth of textile handcraft and the future fashion world. I would like to give you some interesting background numbers. In India, the textile sector is the second largest employer in the country after agriculture. A staggering 45 million people work in the textile and apparel sector and a 100 million more in the related applied industries. India does 5% of the global trade in textiles and apparel and of the world's hand-woven fabric comes from India. So how does degrowth start, given those circumstances? I'm working as a designer and maker in the fields of small-scale production and work predominantly with handcrafted textiles and with textile artisans. I do believe that fabric, the material that real-life fashion and textile craft is made from, is the fiber that connects us, all of us, as human beings... Textiles offer us warmth, protection, and comfort, but they also serve as markers to express belonging. They create a sense of identity and joy. For all these reasons, handcrafted fabrics have to survive. We have to continue making because that makes us human. Concerns of artisanal communities are strikingly similar all over the globe. Notwithstanding their different conditions, all artisans stand at a critical juncture. How can textile handcraft remain relevant as part of a more thoughtful and sustainable fashion industry of the future? What is needed to ensure their relevance and survival? One great strength that India has is its wealth of skilled craftspeople and amazing techniques, unmatched anywhere in the world. People have come to India for many centuries in search of embroideries, prints, weaves, beadworks and more. These crafts have inspired fashion and designers everywhere. For centuries, Indian textile artisans have been the makers of the world. Should that role as the maker to the world continue? I think yes, but in different circumstances as before. Given the global climate crisis and the need to slow down the scale of production, the need of the hour is to emphasize sustainability and focus on creativity and craft, rather than on fast production. At this point, the Indian craft sector can lend its strength. It can set an example for slow and sustainable fashion, something that has always been the essence of traditional Indian aesthetic and wearing styles. India could become a leader in this new movement, but for that to happen, important changes are necessary. The reality of artisans in the craft sector is far from romantic and idyllic. Religious affiliations, as well as the still relevant caste system, all too often prevent craftspeople to experience their jobs as attractive professions. In the last 40 years, India has been losing 15% of its craftspeople every decade to other job segments. This was aided by the strict division between craftspeople, designers, and artists, which was decidedly introduced and emphasized in post-independent India, Craftspeople became dependent on designers and were seen as mere production people manufacturing someone else's ideas. Craft people often exist nowadays in this unfortunate reality of being generally lauded and applauded for their incredible skills and excellence, like recently when a large French uh, label doing a show and it's all in honor of the Indian craftsperson, but they remain anonymous and faceless for the most part. Artisans need social recognition, as well as adequate economic returns for their skills. They have to be named as co-creators. Indian as well as global designers have it in their power to address this in their own way. The explicit recognition of the creative input of the craftsperson is key for a new egalitarian partnership between designers and artisans. This critical change from patronage to partnership is more likely to be possible in small-scale productions. This is where the strength of the Indian handcraft sector lies to contribute towards a new regenerative common good. During our median project, we have consulted with artisans, designers, and artists, and based on this, have come up with some best practices for these design, fashion, and craft collaborations to be meaningful. Excellence is the core of handcraft. Social empowerment is very important because the respect that is Granted to the co-creators is definitely a big part of artisans staying in their work. Economic empowerment, I think you want to be able to plan your profession and the future for your children and your families. Innovation is super important. Crafts are rooted in the traditional skills of making and beauty and culture, again, are Key factors, I think, and it's not only an aesthetic. All cultures are looking for beauty because that connects us and we appreciate and admire that in each other and in the things that we are making. Ecological responsibility, for sure, that's something that we need to move forward. So we have to sort of move from mere proposals to policy. So we have to work with governments to create legally binding rules for these collaborations. Otherwise, we will not be moving in the right direction fast enough.
1: All right. So I will now pass on to my young. Good evening, everyone. And Anjana, thank you so much for setting this context for this conversation between the two of us. I've had the privilege of working with you on your project Made In, contributing a piece which actually questions this sort of false idea of the division between art, design, and craft in the Indian context. I trained in a very formal design school in India where there was a lot of emphasis on this kind of wet-centric idea of design which looked at itself differently from craft and even more differently from the fine arts. Looking at these three disciplines as separate was very conscious and I feel like a lot of my own curatorial practice as having moved away from design to curation and writing has emerged out of a process of unlearning. And I think that's a very key aspect of my own journey and my work. Textiles, handmade textiles, play a very, very, very vital role in defining an idea of Indian fashion. We cannot conceive of Indian fashion without the several traditions of Indian handmade textiles which exist. But we are also faced with a huge challenge that India does not have a single major private museum dedicated to Indian handmade textiles. We do not even have a single gallery dedicated to Indian handmade textiles. We do not have any formal program for education that looks at histories and critical thinking about Indian handmade textiles in the field. And in that vacuum what one has tried to do over the last 10 years as I moved from being a textile maker to a curator is to actually use my exhibitions and the exhibitions that I have the opportunity to curate as means to do several things at once they are pedagogic in that they address questions of students and practitioners in the field they are inspirational in the sense that they appeal to audiences with general interests in Indian culture and Indian art. They are a platform to train the next generation of professionals in the field, whether they're conservators, whether they're exhibition makers or designers, whether they're writers and editors, as well as a device to actually generate reflective symposia and conferences we actually looked at equating their roles rather than presenting them in a hierarchy where designers are superior and the craftspeople catering to the concepts or producing or executing the concepts of designers. The exhibition, New Traditions, Influences and Inspirations in Indian Textiles, 1947 to 2017, the curatorial approach here was to actually place the work of Indian craftspeople, Indian designers, and Indian artists together. And to try and see what kind of a broader understanding of Indian textiles we get through that. I've spoken about one aspect of my curatorial work, which is to question this idea of what is craft, decorative arts, fine arts, design, re-look at the silos between who are artists, designers, and craftspeople, and the inherent hierarchies my curatorial practice has been to try and take exhibitions to cities and towns outside the big urban centers and outside of institutional spaces. India is a very large country. We have a growing population. We are now the largest, the most populated country in the world. And most of India actually lives beyond its urban centers. And through this, I started actually questioning the idea of intellectualizing, theorizing, writing very academic texts, which usually accompany exhibitions. From the time that we are born to the time that we die, all the stages and important rites of passage that we go through, we're always wrapped in textile. They're all, all performing. We're always in participation with them as performances as well. So why not celebrate that performative aspect instead of putting them in boxes and vitrines under arch lights? Why not actually celebrate them at their performative best? I went on to guest edit in 2019 a special fashion issue the same Indian contemporary magazine take on our... Instead of looking, you know, at fashion from the lens of designers, big companies and brands, one looked at an editorial approach where we crowdsourced material. We asked people to send memories, photographs from families, poems, small essays, ideas, thoughts, quotations that actually defined what they felt Indian fashion was. And ultimately, it became an almost 100-year history of Indian fashion. As you might have noticed, most of my projects tried to fill the gap of overview histories of Indian textiles in the post-independence period, but told through personal histories, through memories, through photographs, through visual material that was specially created for the magazines. The idea was to shift... This idea of fashion always being synonymous only with brands, big companies, important fashion designers, fashion weeks, and so on and so forth. Saris, as some of you may know, are worn across the country. They're a form of everyday and formal in- clothing for women. They're usually five and a half to six meters long. And we have hundreds of drapes of the same sari. Sometimes almost from district to district, this drape changes, changes from communities, clans, other kinds of community affiliations and geography, of course. Because a lot of these spaces of handmade production that Anjana spoke about do not have the archives. Often the weavers and practitioners are not in a financial position to even keep some of their best samples, So here was an attempt to actually take these kinds of archives to spaces where production is happening. Because we're faced with a situation where studying about textiles through videos or books does not really give you the idea of what these textiles actually mean when you hold them. And I think that is another aspect that's becoming important to my curatorial practice, which is to not look at textiles only as from a distance, but actually engage with them. Because between seeing a 500 count muslin and holding it, there's a big difference. To engage with the viscerality changes our understanding of what material is. And we'll try to find a way to actually capture that visceral quality of how these textiles are used instead of actually just staging them behind vitrines or as framed textiles, which are of interest to academic audiences, but actually do not help us really understand the way these textiles occupy our emotional and sort of sensory lives. My most recent exhibition was staged on the occasion of a culture working group meet as part of the G20 deliberations that India was chairing the presidency of for the last one year. And Indian handlooms, Indian handmade textiles, are the second largest source of employment generator in the country after agriculture. So this exhibition actually looked at how Indian textiles were a very key aspect of its creative and cultural industries. When we're taking exhibitions outside of the big cities, there is a need to translate them in the local language. And what is really a process of unlearning everything we know about fact and education, about formal systems, is that when these exhibitions, their texts, the exhibition catalogs are translated in local languages, whether it's Telugu in Andhra Pradesh, whether it's Tamil in Tamil Nadu, whether it's Gujarati in Gujarat, whether it's uh, forms of Hindi in Rajasthan or Kannada in Karnataka we find the insufficiency of English as a language for teaching in India. There are nuances English cannot capture and that allows us to truly very humbly accept the difficulties and challenges and the limitations that learning and teaching and practicing and thinking in English pose, which is to lose so much of that complexity that is ingrained in these languages and the kind of layers of culture that really define the plurality that the Indian subcontinent has been known for for centuries and millennia and that it's still known for in current times.
0: Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Fashion as a Great Teacher, spread the word and join us for our next episode.